0: Today, we're going to cover Mark 15:39 to 47, where my original intention was to have two points. But, but in the time of study, uh, I, I was grateful this week because we had testimony sharing, so I didn't have to prepare an in-transit sermon, and I, and I just had extra time to prepare. And there was just so much application that, that I only have one point, and, and, and I had to cut that even short. One point with three sub-points. And so we're only going to go through one point today, allegiance. Then it's going to be next week, church is family. Then we're going to have Easter, standalone sermon. Pastor Albert will be preaching. Then on April 28th, I'll come back and I'll wrap up Mark. And we'll talk about then, we'll talk about the authentication. Mark has a purpose for recording the burial and the death of Christ to authenticate his death. We'll talk about the astonishment. That's how Mark ends in chapter 16, verse 8. And then we'll talk about the addendum. How do we understand the extra parts of Mark that wasn't written by Mark that's in in your Bible? How do we make sense of that? How do we apply it, right? Why does God allow for this to remain in our Bibles? And how does that have a personal application for our lives, uh, even though it's not inspired by Mark? We'll, We'll talk about that April 28th, and then that's perfect because in May we'll be done with Mark. But, but I've loved this journey with Jesus, you know, just journeying through Mark. And, and, and so what we've seen is, 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 is that this really aligns with our vision to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces, reproduces vibrant churches. And, and vibrant churches are filled with individuals. And we've said that what it means to be a disciple maker is to love God and people passionately, to live authentically as genuine followers of Christ, genuine disciples then to give generously of our time, talents, and treasures to the body of Christ as stewards of his kingdom, and then to go courageously as his disciple-makers and everyday missionaries. And today we're going to see two of these themes arise from our one point of allegiance. Our one point today is allegiance. And we're going to see number two, genuine discipleship. There is a challenge today that that speaks to the topic of authentic discipleship especially in light of our culture and society today where you know there's a lot of there's a lot of people attending church but there is a struggle of what it means to truly live for him in our everyday lives what is it about our lives that sets us apart from from those who are are not christians who are who don't have jesus and then secondly you're going to see that true discipleship calls for courage This courage is not a comfortable courage. It's a courage that challenges every single core value of our being and challenges us to stretch beyond this, and it's not comfortable. And so it it requires a courage that then marks a certain type of loyalty to a new type of king. That's what we're going to see today. If you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to Mark 15 if you're not already there starting in verse 39, and we're going to look at verses 39 to 47. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 39, and we're going to look at verses 39 to 47. And the title of this morning's message is The End of the Beginning, Part 2. April 28th will be Part 3. The End of the Beginning, Part 2. Mark 15, verse 39. I'll I'll read one verse at a time, and we'll go through it. Okay, so point, there's only one point. I'll give you three sub-points, but it's allegiance. And we're just going to look at verse 39 first. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, now, this is a powerful turning of allegiance. The word repentance means to turn. And it doesn't just mean physically turning. It is a turning of the heart that requires deep reflection. And it is a turning of the heart that's unpopular. It is not popular. It, it is not easy. It's not comfortable. And so what we see with the, with the allegiance of the centurion is a sense of a turning of loyalty one non-christian writer a catholic writer so i won't quote his name but what he says is true and it makes me think he says loyalty is only a virtual virtue depending on the object of one's loyalty now think about that again he says loyalty is only a virtue meaning it only carries good moral value when It depends on the object of one's loyalty. Because we can be loyal to all types of things and people and institutions in this world. We can be loyal to good things and bad things. But when the object of your loyalty is good, that defines allegiance. Because it's easy to have an allegiance to things, right? But allegiance is different from forced submission. If you have a king named Caesar, and he's all-powerful, and he has armies and militaries, and he's going to kill you. He's going to hurt you. And, and so as a result of fear, you submit to him. Out of fear, that is not true allegiance. So if you're afraid of God, and if you see God as someone who says, you know, God is big and bad, and the only reason why I submit to him is because he will judge me, and I don't want to go to hell, that's not going to last very long. Because as soon as you go back into this world, the world is too tempting. Fear, in, in an unhealthy way, is not true allegiance. True allegiance is loyalty, loyalty to a king who is good, loyalty to a God who we believe that not only is God right, and not only is he God, uh, but I want to pledge my allegiance to God because I believe that he's good. He's good for the sake of good. He's good for me. He's good for all. He is good in the true sense of goodness. And so that's why you would pledge your allegiance to any institution, the church, or any organization, or any nonprofits, or any nation, or any king. And so what you see today is that he refers, this centurion refers to Jesus as the Son of God. This is a big deal, because back then, especially under the Roman Empire, only Caesar would be referred to as the Son of God. And so if you refer to anybody else as a son of a God or a son of God, you are making a major transition in your allegiance. And that's crazy, right? And it's crazy also because when the centurion pledges his allegiance to Jesus, the son of God, if he really means this, and if he really means this, and every gospel writer paints it out as that this is a true conversion and a confession, if this is really true, then there are ramifications for his life. Because he's living the Roman dream. And I want you to just think about what this means. Right? Is that, is that Roman soldiers swore their allegiance to Caesar, and he is a centurion. What does that mean as a centurion? He oversees a hundred men. He is seasoned. He's earned his way through the ranks. He's not just some foot soldier, but he knows how to fight. And he's a hardened man. What else do we know about this centurion? He's guarding the cross, which means likely he is part of the execution squad. He oversaw the execution squad. Last week we talked about him being part of, part of the, the group that mocked Jesus. And and so he's seen many people die. So what happens to your heart? What happens to your soul? Last week we talked about how we're spiritual beings. What, What does it take for you to be able to, because you have to, out of duty and allegiance to your king and your nation, that you can slaughter people with the sword one after the other to protect your king and protect your kingdom. Eventually you have to have a hardening of your heart to some degree so it doesn't affect you. And so PTSD is real. But, but this guy has seen many executions. He's watching criminals. I don't know how many criminals now crucified and, and torture and suffering. So what does it take for you to stand there and to see people suffer and die in agony? Eventually, your heart gets hardened. And so this man is, is not some emotional softy. But for him to actually be moved by the Son of God and to make this conversion is huge. And I want you to think of the Roman dream. There are benefits to him pledging his allegiance to Caesar. Is that he's a centurion. So you have this position of power and authority and respect and fear. People fear you. Secondly, right, you are pledging your allegiance to a great king, Caesar, because as a Roman citizen, you are part of the nation, the kingdom, with the best economy in the world. The best military in the world. And that comes with the best comfort in the world and the best lifestyle that the world could buy back then. The Roman coin, the Roman currency. And if you're an American citizen, you can relate to this because there's this idolatry and there's this temptation Right There's this temptation to find comfort and to pledge our allegiance to things that give us power, value, and worth. And so there is value. It's not just out of fear that he's pledging his allegiance to Caesar. There is personal value for him being part of the most powerful nation in biblical times. And so he understands how the rulers of this world exercise power and authority. He also understands what it means to be a man under submission to Caesar. So submitting to authority. He also understands what it means to be a man who wears and carries power and authority over others. He understands power and authority. And beloved, what I want you to consider this morning is what he sees on the cross is other is otherworldly. He's never seen power like this. He's never seen authority communicated in this way. And that's what transforms him and moves him. What I want you to see is that he sees authority that comes through submission. Jesus submitted to the Father. And I want you to see that he sees power through weakness. This is a power that no man understood, especially in these times. It is a power that comes through brokenness and weakness. It is a power that the world so longs for but doesn't even know how to handle when they observe it or see it, right? This is significance, okay? Let me give you some, some background of why this confession is so powerful. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the very first time, Mark fifteen thirty nine is the very first time that this confession that Jesus is the Son of God comes out of human lips or comes off of human lips in Mark, all of Mark. And why is this important? Because Mark, this is Mark's purpose. In Mark 1-1, Mark begins his gospel saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he wants you to know that this is the main point of his sermon, of his gospel, that Jesus Christ is not just a man, he's the Son of God. Plus, Mark was writing from Rome, writing to Gentile, Gentiles. Hoping that they would understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right? So the Roman centurion connects it in that way. That here's a Roman coming to the Son of God, coming to confess not Caesar, but Jesus, Son of God. And throughout Mark, you have people coming to faith, but out of their lips aren't the words, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the first human being. You have, you have other people though, other types of beings, divine beings. You have God the Father in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. You don't have to write that down. I'm just mentioning it. Mark 1, 11, where where God the Father at Jesus' baptism says, truly, this is my Son, right? This is the Son of God. You have at the transfiguration event at Mark 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, at the transfiguration, God again saying, listen to him. Truly, this is the Son of God. This is my Son. And you have the demons In Mark chapter 3, verse 11, and Mark 5, 7, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, but never a human being. And so this is the very first time that a human confesses the main purpose of Mark, that Jesus is the Son of God. And and you understand, you begin to understand what this centurion saw that ties into the heart of Mark. Right, He sees a type of power through weakness. What did he see? Mark tells us that he observed the way he breathed his last moved him. And it also said that he stood facing Christ. So for for all the time that Christ was on trial, that Christ was beaten, that Christ was crucified, that Christ hung there for those hours... This centurion saw it all. And what he saw was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saw forgiveness that Jesus loved even those who were mocking him and crucifying him. He saw saw something so utterly different from Caesar that you began to understand Mark's purpose, Mark 10, 42 to 45, which is a key cross-reference. In Mark Chapter 10, verse 42 to 45, Jesus called to him, called them to him, his disciples, and he said to them, you know that those who cons- are considered rulers of the Gentiles, Caesar, soldiers, centurions, governors, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave, bondservant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10:45. That gospel is what the Centurion saw. He saw this. He witnessed that here is the most powerful man. That he's ever seen. Power through weakness. Power through weakness. Authority through submission. And he sees that whoever would be among great, great among you becomes a servant. And he's never seen this. All he's seen all his life. All he's seen all his life is the power of Caesar. Lording over people. Killing people. All he's seen is his own hands. Killing people because he has authority. And, and he wears... The the garb and the power of being a Roman centurion. He knows what it's like to have secular power. He knows what it means to be a Gentile, the Lord's over people. And beloved, I'll put it before you that that's how our people rule today. It's a different type of power. It is power through prestige, power through position, power through fear, power through money, power through corruption, or power because of through title, power through inheritance. This is how our world understands power, power so that we can uh, suppress people, power so that we can manipulate the system and people, power so that we can, we can mobilize people so that they do what, what, you know, we want them to do, right? That is how the world sees power, power over the consumer, power to, to manipulate consumers so that, so that people give money to a certain organization or a certain cause or a certain product. This is just the market. This is human life. I'm just calling it what it is, right? It, there, there's not every part of it is bad, but it is human nature. But that's what makes Jesus on the cross so different. And this challenges everything that we believe in about allegiance, right? Is that we give our allegiance because we have to or because we're born into it or because because it's just all we know. So what does it take to turn your heart to a king that is so radically different that calls us to a completely different type of surrender, and then we are to be like Christ, and that's what he wanted to teach his disciples, that if we want to be leaders, if we want to be servants, if we want to be disciples of Jesus and disciple makers, we must serve. We cannot be telling people, look, here's why you need to follow me, because I have these credentials, and I have these degrees. Or, or, or look, look at my accomplishments. Let me show you how to do this. Right, that's exactly the opposite of Jesus Right, And Jesus calls us to this. But think about the surrounding context of Mark. Think about everything else that you see in Mark. Right, You see the religious leaders, how they use their power and authority. Um, and they use it to exploit people for their personal gain. You look at how Pilate, in the surrounding chapters, he had power and authority to do the right thing. But he withdrew out of fear. And he said, I don't want to use my power in this way, to do the right thing, to to say Jesus is innocent. No, we're not going to crucify him. Instead, he was fearful, right? So he had power, but he didn't use it because he was afraid, right? And then you see Jesus, so different, dying on a cross. And this is a different type of power. We do not think of power as vulnerability. And this is why men fall. This is why pastors fall. Right? Because the higher the platform, this is where we have to watch our hearts, the more we guard ourselves, that's not the answer. The answer is you have to be vulnerable. You have to stay in a church long enough for people to know, you know this guy has a lot of weaknesses, and we see it right and when you're vulnerable and honest about your vulnerability right and, and and you're willing to be weak and say look here's what i can't do here's what here's where we need help right and and that's just not what we say if someone comes and interviews for a job and they start telling you their limitations and their weakness you're not going to hire them right but jesus is fully completely naked he's weak he's beaten his father has abandoned him his disciples have abandoned him It's the women who are there, and there's one disciple that's there, John, the one who the beloved disciple, but he's completely vulnerable. He's completely weak. Yet his death is surprisingly powerful because we've never seen such a pure and loving display of power and authority. You're talking about integrity and purity and holiness being put on display through a savior hanging there saying that he loves us through his actions and becoming nothing so that he can uplift people. He lost everything on the cross. He was lowered. He, he himself suffered so that you and I can flourish. That is not the type of leadership that our world cherishes. He lowers himself for the flourishing of others, even those who would murder him, even those who would condemn him. He was dying for some of them, and he wanted to save them. And so power through weakness, authority through submission... That is the type of king that deserves our allegiance. That's the type of king we want to give our allegiance to. But then that challenges us because it's one thing to say, I believe in that king. It's another thing to begin to say, is my heart more wrapped up about the the way that the world defines power and comfort and authority and prestige? Or am I willing to become like this king in the best way possible? How will we use the position's and privileges that God gives us. We shouldn't apologize for God's sovereignty in ordaining that we would be American citizens or live in America, but we ought to be asking what does God call us to? There's a different type of sacrifice that He calls us to, and we must consider what that is. And what are our lives built up upon? Right? Let me tell you something. Let me show you some more insight. Because again, as I kept studying, I had to make a decision. Do we go longer or do we just give you the rest of the text and finish up Mark today? And I couldn't because I don't know when's the next time we're going to preach Matthew or Luke or John. And I know Mark has his purpose, but we have to just see Jesus. It's so powerful. Okay, and so I want you to look at Matthew 27, 50 to 54. This is a little bit of a detour. Matthew records the same event, gives us more insight, because Matthew has a different purpose. And so I don't want to confuse it with Mark's purpose, but I do think that when you look at the rest of the Gospels, it gives you more insight to the event and help you, helps you understand what God is doing to this centurion. It says, And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and notice what happened. And Mark doesn't tell us this because it didn't have to, he didn't have to. It wasn't with his purpose. But it says the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, that's not the only reason that moved the centurion, but that's the power. He sees a man who dies and cries out for the flourishing of everybody else, even those who would kill him. And then all of a sudden, the earth shakes and quakes. Now, verses 52 to 53 are parenthetical, and it's not in historical order. Matthew is just giving you a topical approach, so don't get confused by that. But I, I left that in there for you. It says the tombs were also were open. So the earthquake opened up the tombs and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many as witnesses now i want you to understand that matthew is not recording in a historical order so the centurion didn't actually see the walking dead the resurrected bodies this is keep in mind what it says it says after jesus's resurrection so this is a couple of days later but go back to verse 54 And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, meaning they were guarding him on the cross, saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. So it was the earthquake. The earthquake helped to move. That's the power. So he saw a man, he saw a man, who was dying for others, who was showing power through weakness and authority through submission, and the father, the father shook the earth. And said, yes, this truly was the Son of God. And so now you see Mark's purpose. Every single time this confession was made, there is something powerful and divinely happening. At his baptism, the skies were open. Truly, this was the Son of God. At the transfiguration, Jesus' full glory is temporarily Exposed and the, and the, and from heaven, God the Father says truly this man was the Son of God. And at his, at his death, once again, the earth shakes with the confession. And so, if you confess that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, it will be earth shaking. And figuratively speaking, our lives must be shaken to the core. You cannot just sit there and continue living your lives how you live it, unmoved. That's called Sunday Christianity. The, 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 it's almost figuratively like your life is shaken and you're filled with awe and you confess truly this is the Son of God. How do we know he's truly saved? I mean, every gospel writer almost wants to highlight his confession. Luke chapter 23, verse 47 tells us it wasn't just an earthquake, right? It says, now when the centurion saw What had taken place? He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Here's the difference between two Romans. You have Pilate, the powerful Roman governor, who also said, certainly Jesus is innocent. But he doesn't grasp that this man is the son of God. He's blind to the fact that this man is the son of God. But here's a different Roman, the centurion, who says, certainly this man was innocent and saying praise god he is the son of god now we don't know what happens to this roman does he lose his position i mean does he get killed for for stepping away from caesar or does he just continue as a roman roman soldier as best as he could but being part of the church and using his position in the best way possible but this confession takes courage Because what if Caesar hears about it? What about your other soldiers hearing about this? What are they going to make of you? Are you still going to command the same type of authority over a 100 men who hate Jesus? How can others who witness you turning your allegiance from the Roman emperor to the king of kings, what will they make of you? You see, the idols of the world begin to collapse for this man as he begins to behold the Savior who died for him. And beloved, I put before you and I put before me in conviction, do we move in this way when we study the Bible and the Word of God? Do we pause and look at the cross and look to Christ and say, Christ, where's our allegiance today? Where's our allegiance this morning? We say our allegiance is to you, but what does that even look like for us? Have we loved you? Have we turned to you? Or are we turning to you because it's easy? Because there's a cost. It requires true loyalty. is virtuous based on the object of our loyalty, which is Christ. But it requires courage. And I want you to see that courage in, in the second set of people who, who maintain their allegiance to Jesus. And that's the women disciples. Next time we come around, I'll, I'll tell you more insight into why Mark List these women disciples there. But today I just want you to see something. Look at verse 40 and 41. And then again in verse 47. In verse 40 41 it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Siloam. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Why does Mark include this? This is powerful. Notice he lists them by name. And then he mentions Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and, and Joseph Salome repeatedly throughout the end of Mark. And at least two of them, he mentions them three times. Right, there's a person. But then he says there's many other women there who follow Jesus. And this is purposely there to show you that those who you would expect to be there, the men. Peter is Mark's source and Peter was ashamed. And Peter says, yeah, yeah, Record it how it is. I know it's not popular, but record it how it is. We men, except for John, we weren't there. And so the, the ones who swore their allegiance to Jesus, that you would expect to be there, aren't there. But the women, the weaker ones, the ones you would expect to follow the men instead, they're, they're there, following Jesus and maintaining their allegiance to the end. Who's Mary, of Mary Magdalene? Now, now Mag. Magdala was a city, a village near Capernaum. So the fact that her last name is, is not a surname but Magdalene tells us that she was likely uh, single. This is not as important, but Luke chapter 8 verse 2 says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. So she understands what it means to be rescued out of, out of, out of spiritual oppression and depravity. And she's there with Jesus saying, Jesus, my life was under, under the kingship of Satan and evil. I'm following you to the end. Without you, all I have is Christ. I have nothing apart from you. You look at, you look at the other ones, right? So Mary, the mother of James the younger, and Joseph, with the mother of Jesus. So this is the mother of one of Jesus' disciples named James, the son of Alphaeus. So Jesus has two disciples named James, none of them LeBron, right? But but I love that guy, though. But two of them named James. One is James, the sons, sons of thunder, you know, James and John. But this is the other James, right? The other James. And so it's interesting that her son is hiding, but the mother is there. And who's who's Siloam or Salami, if you want to call her that, right? Um, it makes you want a sandwich, right? But, but Salami or Salome was the mother of James and John. So the sons of thunder... Where are they? Sounds like a tag team WWE wrestling group. Sons of Thunder, we'll be there with you. But they're not. They're hiding except John is there. John is there. I don't know how John hide, John is not persecuted. but John is there. But James is hiding, but the mother is there. So the mother of the disciples are there. And so basically Jesus' women disciples are there. And th- next time I'll talk about how this is so not what you want to do if you want to make up a story. If you want to make up a religion, back then when women's testimonies weren't respected, you would not write women in repeatedly. You would put like credible credible men in there. The fact that these women are there, it shows us authentication that Mark's telling the truth. Mark's telling how it happened and Christianity is not made up. It's not popular. It's not meant to be popular. It's not meant to try to convince you through some type of popular reason. You know, Tim Keller says reason can, can get you to probability, but only commitment can get you to certainty. You see, how do you know that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. These women, they're following Jesus. Verse 47 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid, which means they followed Jesus to the point where he died. I mean, if you think of popular reason, you would think, you know what? He's kind of crucified. He's dead. Let's stop following him. Let's go home. Then you're like, okay, he's really dead. They're taking him to bury him. Why would you go to the grave? Because you're anticipating, hopefully, what he said. Which means maybe the disciples weren't fully listening, but the woman disciples were. Which is Jesus talked repeatedly about his resurrection. And so these woman disciples are following him to the grave saying, is he going to resurrect? Because he said he would. And so they're following him to the end. Because once again, like Keller said, reason can get you only to probability. But even when you don't have secular reasoning and human wisdom, only commitment to Christ can get you to certainty. They were committed to Christ to follow him to the end. And so they are the first ones to get the news from the angel that we see in Mark next time where there's an announcement. Look, he's not here. He's not here. He's resurrected because they follow Jesus to the end. And there's a third person, Joseph of Arimathea. And this one, I want you to see the allegiance, how it requires courage. How it requires courage. Notice verses 42 to 46. Verse 42 to 46, it says, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. Where do we see that he he exercised courage? Well, you know, Mark says it. That's what the word says. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I want to exposit that. That's what got me stuck. That's what said, Hanley, you're not doing two points today. You're doing one point and you might go to 1230, right? Just that word alone. You do the exposition of this. And you say, how is he courageous? Uh, What do you mean, how is this courageous? You do the exposition of this. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why is that courageous? He's just doing what a religious leader would do. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So see what happens you know here now first we don 't know the exact location of Arimathea. it sounds like some aroma right but but basically it is a city, and I take the view that this is the birthplace of of the prophet Samuel, which is a village called Ramatheam Zophim, located 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Okay, that's Arimathea. Now that's debated, but that's kind of what I think is right. First Samuel 1:1 mentions this city. And so he is, he's a Jew. It also tells us that he's a member of the council. What council? What council? He's the member of the Sanhedrin. He's actually part of the group that condemned Jesus to to crucifixion. He's part of that evil Jewish council that conspired against Jesus and handed Jesus over. But what we learn from Luke and John is that he was a secret Christian. Now you begin to relate to him. Fear. He knows in his heart that there's something about Jesus. He's a seeker of the kingdom. He kind of sees that this guy lines up with everything I know in in my rabbinic studies about the Old Testament but I'm afraid. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, meaning he has position, he has power, he has authority, and he's, and he's wealthy. And he's in a high position of social value. And beloved, it requires courage to face the reality that if you take a step of faith of allegiance, you might lose it all. You might just lose it all. Now, Luke 23, 50. Luke 23, 50. I don't have this on a slide for you, but it tells us It tells us that Joseph was a good and righteous man and that he did not consent to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin. So Luke tells us that's what was going on in his heart. Maybe he spoke up, but not enough at that point to be killed, right? Or to be be thrown out of the Sanhedrin. Now, John chapter 19, verse 38, describes Joseph of Arimathea as a disciple of Jesus. Why would you refer to someone as a disciple of Jesus? He really believed that Jesus was Messiah, but he was afraid. That's what I mean. What does this word courage mean? You go deeper and deeper and deeper into the text, and it just kills you and convicts you that he actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he he was afraid to be exposed. So he goes to Pilate secretly. But that requires courage because back then, guess what? Every gospel writer talks about you, Joseph, which means oral tradition was spreading, means people are going to talk about you. Pilate's going to talk about you. The Jewish Sanhedrin and all your Jewish friends, they're going to know that you went and tried to bury Jesus. They're they're, going to know that you're a follower of Jesus. And so he had a crucial decision to make. Do I allow the person that I believe is the Son of God to be discarded among the criminals because that's what they would do to crucify bodies. They would just discard you. Maybe there was one huge grave where they would just burn your bodies and throw your bodies, and they didn't care about how you were buried. But he believed, and little does he know that he's being used by God, by his courage. But first of quote, John MacArthur explains: quote, the Christian life is not adding. Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever costs that may require. End quote. And this is powerful because the centurion is renouncing his allegiance to Caesar, which means he might lose his rank and position. The woman disciples might have risked their lives. And This Joseph of Arimathea, he will and he does lose his position among the Jewish Sanhedrin. You cannot remain among the people who hate Jesus and be a follower of Jesus. He loses everything. He loses everything. Right. And so you consider what he understands here is that it is he has to renounce his personal way of life. It's not, I can continue to have the power and prestige and, and position and, and exploiting people through the temple system. I, I can't continue to have that and believe in Jesus. But that's what he had for a while, secretly following Jesus. But now in the moment of testing, he, he exercises courage and little does he know God uses his actions to fulfill scripture. You see, because here's what Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23 says about crucified bodies or bodies of criminals. And Jesus didn't have to obey the letter of the law. But the fact that this happens, even the way that he was buried perfectly lines up with the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 21, Moses prescribed in verse 22 that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, so this is equal to crucifixion, and his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. So Jesus died to fulfill the law. He didn't have to you know, follow this, but Joseph's actions help Jesus to fulfill the spirit of the law, right, and fulfill the letter of the law. But Matthew 27 tells us that, Jesus, that Joseph was wealthy. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He had a lot of money, and most of those people, they have their own places of burial. They have tombs. They have places to be buried and where their families were buried, and here's what Isaiah 53, 9 predicted. And Joseph had no idea that his courage would fulfill the prophecy of Scripture. Isaiah 53.9, it predicted about the suffering servant. It says, they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus died a sinner's death. Died with the wicked. But with a rich man in his death. And so, left once again, left with the Romans, his body would have been discarded with the criminals. But instead, Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. Why is this important? You know, you might look at this and say, well, you know, who cares, right? Just a few references." But I think this is the amazing precision of scriptural fulfillment. And God using everyday people who even are afraid and fearful and even are part of the wrong crowd for a moment. He uses people, everyday people, everyday missionaries to fulfill something as powerful as divine plans of redemption and scripture. And things like this help me to realize and help us to realize that scripture is 110% accurate. That Jesus is fully precise in his fulfillment of divine prophecy. And that leads us to the big idea this morning, is that allegiance to Christ, allegiance to the cross of Christ, calls for unpopular repentance. You see that in turning from the Roman dream to Jesus' plan for your life, right? That allegiance to the cross of Christ calls for unpopular repentance, unwavering commitment, and unrelenting courage. You see the unwavering commitment of the woman uh, just so faithful to the end, and rightly so, that they would be elevated to to see their faithfulness in a society that was backwards, and unrelenting courage, unrelenting courage, Courage of of Joseph of Arimathea tested in the moment. Do we do the right thing? Do I do the right thing? And he does the right thing. You see, what we see from application is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ, truly, this man was the Son of God. Yet, the Son of God didn't have to be, but he was crucified for our sin. This announcement requires a response of allegiance. It will either be offensive to you, which then will cause you to maintain your allegiance to whatever you have your allegiance to, or it will mean nothing to you or us, or you begin to truly grasp the full weight of Christ crucified, and it changes you. It changes you from the inside out, repentance. And the cross begins to define your values and your purpose in life each and every day. And allegiance to Christ, it does require a certain type of loyalty because Jesus is, is a king. He is the king of kings, and Mark presents him as a king of a kingdom that is radically different. A king who, once again, his authority comes through submission, and his power comes through weakness, and, and the followers of his kingdom, his ambassadors, must reflect power through weakness lowering ourselves for the uplifting of others and for the purpose of the flourishing of people and not ourselves. And it requires courage to switch our allegiance. And for many of us, this is convicting for me too. You know, where's my allegiance? Where's my allegiance to Christ? Who do we live for? And so here's what we're going to do for response. We're going to take offering after... We pray, and if you're a guest, please do not feel obligated to give. And during the offertory, I want you to reflect on the first song, that in tenderness, Jesus doesn't come to us as a a ruling dictator like Caesar, but he comes to us as a shepherd in tenderness. Oh, consider the love that sought us, and oh, consider the blood that bought us and the grace of God. And then in the second song, I've asked, so we're going to end five minutes late today, okay? I've asked the worship team to play... I will offer up my life as a response. And if you're moved by that, respond to him. And if you need prayer, come forward for prayer or just come kneel or kneel where you're at or just pray. And surrender to your life to Lord because allegiance is something we have to consider. There are some of us sitting here today that you might think, that your allegiance is to Christ. But, you know, reality and in tenderness and love, the Spirit shows you. Not through, through condemnation, but through conviction. You realize your allegiance is really to yourself in this world. But, but, but again, it is earth-shaking. If your allegiance is truly turned truly to Christ, you cannot continue to live how you live. This has ramifications for our money, for our wallet, for our time, for our talents, for our treasure, for how we raise our children, for how we pursue marriage, for how we pursue our careers, and who we invest in and what we do with our lives. So, beloved, I put that challenge before you, and I'm challenged by it myself. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, oh, how tender the love that sought us. Oh, how tender the blood that bought us so that we can see that truly you are the Son of God. Father, I pray that you would test our allegiance today. I pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us what it means to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to you, because we see on the cross power through weakness and authority through submission. Help us to be that type of disciple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.